From Harris Studios, this is Accounting for Tomorrow, an accounting and advisory services podcast for community leaders with a passion for change. We are ready to look past the numbers and ensure that today's planning efforts create success for tomorrow. Welcome. I'm Josh Tyree, CEO at Harris CPAs, and today I'm joined by our COO, Robert Shappy. And our guest speaker today is David Hutchison. David is a tax partner here at Harris and joined our firm this year as part of a merger. He has been a frequent speaker on a local radio show, and we're really excited to get some of his insight with us today. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Oh, I tell you, I'm excited to be here, Josh. Uh, well over 30 years of experience um, in the Treasure Valley, small business, uh, high net worth, individuals, state trusts. Uh, planning overall a lot of experiences I'm excited to be here and share some of those and participate the best I can and try to help the Harris clients and family and give some good information and feedback we appreciate you being here today as we've seen business owners are living in uncertain times right now we've seen uh, drastic declines in the stock market inflation is going up over the last year interest rates are soaring and the prospect of a recession in, in certain industries or certain areas or even in the country is rising. One of our favorite parts of our job is helping businesses create opportunity in times like these through strategic tax planning and advising on their business. It's never a kind of a one-size-fits-all model, but a few adjustments at the year end can make a huge impact long-term. As Congress and the IRS aren't about to let us off easy and we have some potential changes, Coming in this coming year, we're going to dive in today on this podcast, and hopefully you'll find a few things to consider for your own business as you come up on year end. So to get things going here, I'd like to just kind of start off with, uh, we had a ton of changes last year, ABE or the pass-through tax, K2s and K3s. We still had a lot of COVID money coming through, whether it was the employee retention credit or the Paycheck Protection Program. And as we kind of roll into next year, maybe we can just kind of discuss some significant changes or if there's standard items that everyone should be thinking about as we get into year end. Uh, Thanks, Josh. First, I'd like to start by talking about tax deductions in general and kind of tax planning and cash flow. The way that I like to present tax planning to my clients is that there are essentially three main buckets of ways to reduce your tax burden. There's what I call deferral strategies, which are essentially ways that you can place funds into some other vehicle that will give you a current deduction that will be then taxable at a later date when you pull that money out. So there are several things in that arena that you are able to uh, use for your business throughout the year that can defer those taxes. The second way to get a tax deduction is to buy something and consume it, whether it be paper or a desk or a vehicle or a piece of machinery. That, That is the second way that we get tax deductions. And then lastly, we can get tax deductions through rate reductions. And those rate reductions come primarily in the form of tax credits. So if we're doing specific activities and those activities are incentivized by the government to give you a lower tax rate by virtue of a credit, then we'll try to identify those activities that your business is doing and make sure that you're taking advantage of all of the opportunities that are there. 
With those three categories in mind, I would ask David to kind of talk about some of his ideas on what he's seen lately or is used in those arenas. Oh, yeah, sure. Kind of starting off, I'm in total agreement with you on uh, putting it into a bucket strategy. I use that with clients a lot, by the way. Uh, It's just easier for them to formulate that where I'm pulling it from a storage space. And so in in using some of those might be like you had mentioned uh, deferral of income, for example, strategizing how to or when to take stock sales or real properties sales or a liquidation event with an entity that you own or something like that. You may be able to structure like an installment sale. Uh, basically, an installment sale is a sale in this year, but the potential with the capital gains, you can defer the tax impact to a future date as you collect it versus all in a year sale. Now, there are some things in this process of planning that we have to be very critical of timing. Uh, timing is generally December 31st, right? And if we don't get things done by December 31st, as a structure of a deal or some type of planning strategy in place, it makes it very difficult to deal with it until next year. So now the the thing about timing is not just transaction timing, but things like capital gains, short-term capital gains, long-term capital gains from anything can be used to defer into what they call qualified opportunity zone funds. Getting into the details of that is a little probably beyond what we're doing, but knowing that if you were to sell a short-term capital gain in December, you could strategize to buy yourself 180 days from that date to invest in a qualified opportunity zone fund. Now, there are pros and cons to doing that, as with anything. I primarily go back to, let's start from the beginning. You talked about, you know, currently spending money to get a deduction. Well, the first thing I always hit on is what are the economic needs of your business or don't just go out to spend money to let the the tax tail wag the dog kind of thing. So it's got to have economic benefit. If you're going to do it, you should consider doing it in a high income year before the end of the year so you can take advantage of that deduction. One of the most critical ones I see overlooked quite a bit is probably in the pension arena. And I always want people, it kind of hits three different areas, right? It it saves taxes when you contribute to a pension plan. It's uh, an asset protection vehicle, and you get to use it into your retirement years. And where else can you get a deduction that you're paying yourself for? Very few, if any, other than pensions. So those are some examples, I think, that I have used in in the past and using currently. Thanks. You know, I, I, you guys highlighted two that are probably pretty common that come up. Uh, one in kind of the pension of the retirement, but then also, I mean, we get it all the time. They, people want to buy equipment or stuff at year end, you know, and the depreciation and the section 179, which is associated with depreciation rules. So maybe Robert, could you give us maybe a little highlight or update on equipment purchasing or depreciation rules? Are there any changes this year coming down the pipe? What are the limits? What do you tell your clients to think about as they're making that kind of purchase decision? 
Yeah, I, I think that it's it's really relevant now. And like David said, the economics of a purchase need to be evaluated as well. Um, we can't simply buy things just to get a tax deduction because that economically that's a hundred percent outflow of cash versus just the tax itself. So um, in the environment that we have today, it's virtually unlimited what you can deduct. We Between the two different sections of deductions that you have, you have bonus depreciation, which can be taken at the federal level, not at the state. Um, and then you also have section 179. And so between the two of those, we will maximize the amount that you'll be able to deduct as long as you're under the threshold for purchases. So the, the depreciation and purchases at year end is a really common thing. And I appreciate, Robert, some of the insight on that. You definitely have to make a, a business decision first, and then hopefully the tax will support it, which is a lot of times what's going on at the end of the year. Can we use these assets in the upcoming year? Might as well buy them before year end to get a little bit of a tax break. But we know the business case for the asset is going to come up in the coming year. Uh, let's switch to retirement plans or pension plans, different aspects to that. What are some common things, David, that you see that clients can do at the end of the year to utilize those and help reduce their taxes? Sure. Going into year end on pension plans and retirements, your options are still pretty open, except for simple IRAs. Simple IRAs have to be done by October during the current year in order to take advantage of those. But your SEP, your 401k, profit sharing, those types of things can be set up up until year end. And really what you're looking for is, you know, do you have employees? Because that's usually a lot of times from an employer standpoint or a company standpoint, you start to not be able to convince an employer that that's a good avenue to approach for a tax deduction because they become uncertain about the amount. How much are they giving to each employee? And sometimes it can place a limitation on your deferral mechanisms, right? There are certain actuarial calculations that can limit an owner's ability to do the full deferral at some times, unless they want to meet that, I believe it's four or 5% matching or profit sharing contribution to employees. The nice thing about it is on the employer contribution piece, we have until extended due date, we can buy time into the next year to fund it. So it's actually a good vehicle to consider because it doesn't have to be spent for cash flow purposes today. So let me ask a quick question on that. You have you have retirement contributions and the timing of that you said you have until I think you file your tax return to to make some of those. What about bonuses, uh, year-end bonuses uh, or other items that um, do you have to pay those by the end of the year or what's the timing you have to make those kind of decisions? It's two and a half months uh, after year-end on bonuses to make a deduction on the accrual basis back into uh, the current year. Generally, it's a cash basis situation where you need to pay those bonuses by the end of the year in order to take advantage of it. So, so that if is critical. So if you're a cash basis tax return company, you need to pay your bonuses by year end. But if you're an accrual tax basis payer, you can wait until, was it March 15th, to as long as you've paid your bonuses for that. But isn't there a, a clause for, like, if you're the owner of the company? Right. Officers and owners. Officers and owners. Right. Okay. Are not able to be included in the bonus accrual. 
that leads to another item to consider for year-end tax planning is your method of accounting. So we've had a lot of changes to the rules recently regarding who can use cash method and who is required to stay on accrual method. And so we evaluate every year our clients' method of accounting to see if we can have an additional deferral opportunity. You can change your method once every five years. And so if you meet the requirements now to be a cash basis taxpayer versus accrual, oftentimes we will switch to get the most advantageous method. Additionally, in changing those methods, the IRS allows some deferral of any tax that's due on that. So oftentimes, even if we go into a method that generates more taxable income, because of the switch and the length of time that we have to take into account the change, we can still lower the tax. So it's often very important to look at the method of accounting at the end of the year and make sure that you're on the right method. Yeah, I totally agree. I think one thing you want to keep in mind, too, is I think it's going to sneak up on a few people because we really haven't had to address that in a, in a lot of occasions for a while. It, you know, it's $26 million kind of climbing, and it's adjusted each year. So that's something really to take a look at and monitor because I think it will surprise some people. Excellent. So I have one last thing on timing because a lot of what we've just been talking about is kind of deferral strategies and and pushing tax from, you know, deferring it out. But we've had a couple last three years have been very interesting for most businesses. And we've got this inflation and different things. So some businesses seem to be doing great. Others have, you know, a bad year here or there, they might have a great year last year and a bad year this year or vice versa. But it seems like the rules around net operating losses, if you had a loss year, how can you utilize that have been changing from year to year? So could you guys give us a little update on what we're looking at for NOLs in 2022? I can add a little bit to that, Josh. What we're looking at is is you're referring to the 80% allowance against current year income. So if you had a net operating loss post 2017, I believe, the, the Trump taxation changes. There's that limit placed on it that you have to be careful of. It isn't 100% offset, still 20-year carryover. But you, you do see that from time to time, and you have to be careful in particular that you're not assuming you've offset all of your income. So, yeah, that needs to be evaluated before year-end as well. Thanks, David. I have a quick question. I know there were some changes during COVID on NOLs, but I think they're going back to where they were in 2022. So can you carry back your NOL or do you need to carry forward your NOLs going forward in 2022? There's a limited period of time between the time that that COVID bill was passed that allows for a five-year carry back of net operating losses. And in some instances, it would also allow a 100% deduction. Excellent. So if you do have a, an NOL in one of these last three years, it's really important to, to sit down probably with your CPA and go through some of these rule changes that are going on to figure out what's the most advantageous for you to, to use utilize the NOL. We've talked a little bit about tax deferral strategies, but you know there's credits out there that are available for businesses really help you just kind of avoid some taxes or capitalize on some of these credit options. Some of the common ones we've mentioned, Opportunity Zone, there's Work Opportunity credits that have been around, R&D, Federal Empowerment Zone, different types of credits. But I know there's been a, a little bit of a change this year in some of the R&D credits that are pretty common for businesses to take advantage of and 
how you're treating maybe those expenses associated with R&D credits. So maybe, Robert, you could give us a an update on R&D credits and, and kind of what we're looking at in the upcoming year. Yeah, when addressing research and development credits, I think it's important to define what those are. Research and development is not traditionally what you would consider uh, lab coats and beakers. There's a lot of businesses that produce research and development credits, and they don't even know it. Anytime that there's a process of experimentation and they meet the five-part criteria for that, if they're figuring out a new way of doing something, we've seen all sorts of businesses qualify for this from manufacturing companies to construction companies, engineering companies. Anytime that you have those activities, research and development is essentially a wage-based credit. It's based on payroll for those activities. And so some of the changes that came down most recently in the CHIPS Act were that research and development credits, the expenses used to qualify for those credits now have to be capitalized. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changed the way that we account for the expenses associated with research and development credits. You're now uh, required to capitalize and amortize research and experiment expenditures over a period of five or 15 years, beginning in 2022. So taxpayers that are qualifying for those credits need to take into account that change. And uh, we need to evaluate whether or not it has a negative or positive impact on their cash flow. Excellent. Like for other credits, like work opportunity, opportunity zones, different federal empowerment zones, have there been any changes on those or have they been pretty consistent from the prior years? I think they've been pretty consistent, to be honest with you, Josh. When we get into credits, kind of getting back to piggybacking off what Robert was saying, you know, the research and, and development expenses, it's interesting where you'll find it. I've seen it in HVAC companies have qualified for it. A lot of the tech companies because they're trying to stay competitive. So they're always trying to introduce something new or find something new. So it's not just your traditional beaker chemistry items that you're looking for. And also, I think in Idaho, they also piggyback off the federal rules to an extent. So there's also an Idaho credit associated with that. Excellent. Excellent. So two of the bigger legislations, at least that have come out this year is the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. And being here in Idaho, we obviously have heard a lot about the CHIPS Act and Micron and what they're going to be doing uh, based off that. But, you know, we deal with a lot of, you know, pass-through entities, businesses, small to medium-sized businesses. And so what part of those two acts, are there going to be any impacts that people will see, you know, outside of the microns of the world or the you know intels of the world from those acts any tax changes that we need to watch out for this year definitely part of the chips act provided for a advanced manufacturing credit for companies that manufacture semiconductors or equipment required in the use of manufacturing semiconductor equipment so we find throughout the valley there are lots of businesses that are in the business of producing equipment that is used in the semiconductor industry. And so they should be on the lookout for the opportunity to get that advanced investment credit for those activities. So I want to switch gears a little here. Something that came out 
last year, I, I refer to it as ABE. Some people call it the PTE, pass-through tax. There's, there's different terminology that's used, but a way that you can realize a deduction for your state taxes that you're paying. And it came out right towards the end of last year. We've kind of figured out the rules and how it was interpreted. But David, can you give us a little highlight of what that deduction is and how people should take advantage of it? Sure. We just went over this. A state tax update just occurred recently, so it kind of fits in in timing. There's still a lot of people that don't use it or take advantage of it, aren't familiar with it. The ABE or the SALT references are what you hear normally, and a lot of people are, are saying, well, are they the same thing? And basically what's happened is that at the IRS level, the federal level, They've limited your deduction on your itemized deductions for any kind of tax, right? State, real estate, other other taxes to that 10000 cap. So what happens is people are all up in arms on how do we get around this? Well, with all the turmoil and political things that went on throughout the year, a lot of states came back and said, hey, we're going to do a workaround. So Idaho, being they labeled it ABE, and you make an election at the pass-through or flow-through entity level. Now, that's an S-corporation or partnership. It can be an LLC, but it has to be taxed as an S-corporation or a partnership. So what happens is they allow the entity, as long as everyone agrees to it, that they make the election, the ABE election, found out that the ABE election doesn't necessarily need to be attached as long as you mark the box on, I believe it's page one, making that ABE entity election. So then the entity can prepay your state tax kind of like you used to do when you could do it at the individual level. That allows for a federal deduction. You you have the add back for state for the income piece of it. So it, it isn't a benefit to the state other than the credit or payment amount flows through to the individual. So it's as though they paid that tax as a withholding or credit type offset to the tax liability. Perfect. Yeah. I think a lot of people miss what that limitation is on their individual return because with our home prices going up and the property taxes going up, right? Your property tax for a lot of people, you know, choose into that $10,000 limit pretty good. And so any other state tax is really just being lost at the individual level. So if you're able to have a S corp or, or an LC or, you know, being taxed at that pass through entity level partnership, and you're able to take advantage of it, it really gives you, you know, for the most part, a 30 or 30%-ish deduction for your state taxes. I find that to be very beneficial. When you talk to people about it, they're all on board. But I'm surprised how many practitioners out there still aren't fully aware of it or using it to maximize that benefit. Some of the confusing pieces is if you have companies in other states like California and Utah and whatnot, Some of the states do it, some of the states don't. And they have different parameters or requirements that you have to do from year to year in order to qualify. And one such requirement that was kind of odd with California is I believe they had to pay by June 50% of the estimated tax. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to do it for California. Is there any sense of urgency on that for year end? Absolutely. Can those taxes be paid by the due date of the pass-through so to get the deduction piece of it for the federal side, you have to do it by the end of the year. You can still make the election and pay it by April 15th. 
but it won't be deductible until the next year. So you mentioned one thing as we were going through that, you mentioned SALT. And so that's state and local tax. And it's been a big topic, especially over the last several years as people are moving all over, working from everywhere, and for states to try and figure out where are they going to get their taxes. And so maybe, Robert, you could start us off with just talking a little bit about kind of an update on Nexus and where we see that going and why is that important for businesses to understand their SALT or their state and local tax rules as they go through their year-end planning. When it comes to state nexus and state taxation, the states are all very aggressively trying to assert themselves over income from different types of businesses, whether you're providing services or selling items over the internet. The most recent major case was Wayfair, which happened a few years ago, which basically allowed the states to reduce the requirement for them to assert their nexus over a business. I think The most important thing that a business owner can take from this is that do not believe that you are not required to file and pay taxes in a state if you do any kind of business in that state, whether you have one employee there, whether you're shipping items there, whether you're receiving items there, you should undertake some evaluation to review those requirements so that you can assess the risk level that is present and whether or not you need to have a filing requirement in those jurisdictions. Right. Cause the rules have changed, right? It used to be, if I don't have an employee or I don't have an office there, then I don't have to worry about it, but that's definitely changed over Correct. the last several years. So, and you got to be careful of those remote worker situations since COVID as well. It was an interesting topic with the Idaho state tax update. Uh, one of the things they mentioned was, you know, like Amazon having, basically a nexus here and all the distribution facilities, but their executives come and spend two to three weeks in Sun Valley strategic planning and whatnot. One of the comments was, "Is are those wages actually subject to Idaho taxation and should they be allocated? The answer is yes, technically, but they're not going to enforce it. So we, you do have to be careful, especially if people are, are working in different states now And with the labor shortage and trying to retain people, it's going to be something that is going to be somewhat interesting as it progresses into the future. That's interesting. They're not going to enforce it, right? And at least Idaho is in a good spot right now where we've got a lot of tax revenue coming in. But you go to other states around the country who might not have as much coming in or be, you know, in a deficit standpoint, they might look at their enforcement rules a little bit differently. You know, those rules are are there, and you just have to be careful as you interpret all of them. I I think it puts a lot of pressure on employers. Again, it's one of those situations where it's just another thing they have to consider, right? And and another nuance in in all the other things they need to take care of is adding an extra state or W-2 and taxing it to the proper state. Well, I appreciate you guys coming today. You know, I think we learned or talked a lot about, you know, tax credits or timing of different tax payments. To me, if you're running a business, the most important thing is to really get ahead of the curve and start talking to your CPA about these different strategies and what you can do before you're in. Because coming in in April, 
or March and trying to talk about these, you, you've lost, it sounds from what I've heard from you guys today, you're going to lose a lot of what you could do if you talked about it beforehand. And That's so. definitely for sure. And I think, I think one of the most important parts to, as well is we're just touching the iceberg. Like it's just the tip here. Like there is so many more things that we haven't talked about. I mean, we can't, we can't talk about every tax planning opportunity in a 30 minute podcast, it would take days. So there are a lot of opportunities out there that should be evaluated. So definitely get in touch with your tax advisor and make sure that you're going through a, a systemic review of your positions. Excellent. Well, thank you again for you guys joining on the podcast. We're excited as we get here through the fall and start meeting with our clients, you know, working through the end of the year and then hopefully into next year and really trying to get to that point where we're we're talking about their business and their tax 365 days a year, right? There is always tax planning. There's always things uh, that we could be advising together to make sure the business and the tax side are in concert together as we go throughout the year. So I appreciate both of you being on today. Thanks, Josh. Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for listening to Harris CPA's Accounting for Tomorrow. Stay tuned for new episodes each month. Podcasts are also available on our website at harriscpas.com slash podcasts. Any accounting business or tax advice contained in this podcast is not intended as a thorough in-depth analysis of specific issues, nor a substitute for a formal opinion, nor is it sufficient to avoid tax-related penalties. If you'd like, Harris CPAs would be pleased to perform the research and provide you with a detailed analysis of your specific situation.